Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Tyler Minnis, who is a staple here in the Columbus restaurant scene. I first learned about Tyler when he was back at the Market Italian Village. He did this thing called No Menu Mondays, which was phenomenal, but basically no restaurants were really open on Mondays. This is all pre-COVID. That was usually a night that everybody was off. Restaurants were closed. Historically, that's just not, not a night that people go out to eat. Usually it's their first day back in the office from the weekend and everything like that. So, you know, they're trying to get back in the swing of their, you know, rotation and all this stuff and their routine and everything. So Mondays are traditionally a disastrous day for restaurants in terms of people coming out to eat and everything like that for dinner. Most places aren't open. And what the Market Italian Village did was they had this thing called No Menu Monday, and he would take ingredients from the other restaurants that were in the partnership of A&R Creative Group. So the Crest, Alchemy, few other places near campus and everything. So whatever leftover ingredients that they all kind of had that, you know, maybe we're going to go bad soon or something like that, that just hadn't moved or whatever. He would take those ingredients and come up with a menu. It'd be like 10 to 15 different options, an a la carte menu. And usually there was always like a pizza. There was always a charcuterie board. Um, there was usually some sort of dip hummus thing going on or some variation of that. And there was a couple staples on the menu like that. But for the most part, it changed every Monday. And every Monday you could go in there. It's a brand new menu, off the cuff, off the riff, limited planning, using different ingredients that were still seasonal, but maybe coming to the end of their seasonality. Or And it was just fantastic. There's nothing else like it in Columbus at the time. There hasn't been anything like it since. And it was you know one of our go-tos. And every Monday we'd be sitting there refreshing the Instagram page, seeing they'd post the menu and you'd go look at it in advance, you know, at five o'clock. And it's like, okay, I'd like one, two, three, and pick out like three, four, five things that you're like interested in. And you'd go in there and you'd have a fantastic meal. You know, that was kind of our Monday routine. Wouldn't have to plan dinner or anything like that. You could just go have a great meal in a pretty awesome restaurant setting and everything. So that's kind of how I first learned about Tyler and everything and had his food. And then when COVID happened, everything moved on to different projects, did some time at Lawbird, um, running kind of their little food program that they have. Um, did Boxwood Biscuit Co. for a little bit too as well. And is now over at Wario's uh, Beef and Pork with Stefan Medias, who's been on this podcast previously at the beginning of the year. So check that episode out if you haven't. Um, he gets into the history of Wario's and how it came to be and everything like that. But so we cover all that stuff uh, from start to finish with Tyler. And he's a little bit of a soft-spoken guy, you know, but um, finally was able to kind of chase him down uh, <laughs> and get him on the podcast. And it's super exciting just because he's somebody who we've eaten so much of their food from and it was all delicious. So we'll post a bunch of stuff on Instagram from all the No Menu Monday pictures and everything that we have, some highlights and everything. Super cool to finally get him on the podcast. One of the first kind of transformative dining experiences here in Columbus that we kind of discovered randomly. And I think part of that was because, you know, the Market Italian Village, the name was confusing. You know, the restaurant's closed now, unfortunately, but it's really the market at Italian Village or the market in Italian Village. People didn't really know what it was. It was like, is this a market? Is it an Italian restaurant? So there was some confusion there around the name for a little while, but once they kind of got rolling um, over the past couple of years, I think people started to figure it out. Uh, like I said, that restaurant has closed uh, and Tyler has since moved on to other things. Like I said, he's over at Wario's now doing a lot of their specials and they're getting ready to do uh, some future things too as well, uh, looking at possibly different locations. And, and Tyler also announces uh, their next kind of venture that they're going to be doing too here. So you can follow him on Instagram. It's at TKMin28. 
And also follow the restaurant at Wario's Beef and Pork. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social medias, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1, but mainly we use the Instagram. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We have different links to all the episodes, pictures of different food that we've eaten from all the different chefs um, that we've had on the podcast, and sommeliers, and restaurant owners, hospitality industry participants, cheese manufacturers, all that kind of stuff. So you can find all that stuff there on the website. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform you use. We're on all of them. Just click the follow button. All new episodes will drop right into your feed on whatever device that you're using that you're signed into the account on. New episodes usually come out on Thursdays. For the month of December, we're going to try. We're going to try and do two episodes a week here. So we're going to try and do Tuesday and Thursdays for the month of December. We might miss a Tuesday here or there if we get kind of delayed with some of the editing process and everything like that and the mixing and mastering. But that's our goal for this month, basically, to do two episodes a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays. And once we hit the new year, we'll go back to just once a week in uh, Thursdays. Thursdays, 1 a.m. is normally our time, but we're going to, like I said, try and do Tuesdays as well. So you definitely want to make sure you're followed on whatever app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, whatever. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Tyler Minnis, who is one of the chefs over at Wario's Beef and Pork here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work for a long time since the No Menu Monday days, which were some great Mondays, few and far between places that were open, you know, on Mondays back then. Oh, it's all pre-pandemic. And I want to get into kind of that and what you got going on now and future projects. But before we do, I always like to start kind of at the beginning with everybody. You know, how did you first get involved with cooking? Because you grew up on a family farm, right? 30 minutes, an hour away from Columbus, something like that. I grew up in Zanesville, so it's about an hour away. Actually, we do have a family farm, but my dad did not purchase that till about 2010, so we did not grow up with that. Lucky enough to have it now, just spent some time there with some friends. We do an annual hog roast. We just had it uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, not until 2010, so we're already finishing up with college, and so we had to enjoy the spoils, actually, during the Angry Bear days with that farm. I started cooking, I suppose, in college, mid-20s. I started a little late, supposedly, needed a job, really, and jumped into a, a restaurant work over at a place called Louie Louie. And then, uh, you know, I was really, I went to Ohio University up in Athens, and I was undecided with my majors for the first couple of years. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. It's kind of needed a job. I thought this cooking thing might be cool, and that's how, how it all started. Did you wind up going to, like, art school? So I got a bachelor's degree over at... Uh, at OU I ended up so like I said I was undecided I was psych for a while political science for a while then ended up finishing with the um, bachelor's in hospitality management if you will business minor and psych minor and then after that I moved to Portland Oregon for culinary school the culinary school was at the art institute of Portland so they just had a culinary program within that art so what was your original career path where did you think you were headed when you were at Ohio University, psychology, poli sci? Like, what were you kind of thinking you were going to do? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think uh, looking back, and I would recommend this to any young people, is I kind of wish I would have taken a year off between high school and college because I really just kind of jumped into that college experience and not knowing 
what my future would be. Through high school, I played a lot of competitive tennis and traveled uh, all around the country just doing like junior tennis tournaments. So I knew all I wanted to do was really play tennis, but I really wasn't thinking too much beyond that. My first year, I ended up going to um, Walsh University, which is a small NAIA school up in Canton. And I got a scholarship there and just ended up hating it. It was like, a, I thought I was going to be able to walk on at Ohio State and then that didn't work out at the last minute. So the uh, coach there called Walsh and they took me on like two weeks before. I didn't really tour it or I just kind of went. And uh, it was only like 1,200 people and I got into trouble and just it wasn't really the college experience that, you know, you romanticize about your younger years. My brother had ended up going to OU and I visit and a small 1,200 people Catholic Canton school wasn't for me. And I ended up transferring to OU and kind of hung up the tennis racket after that because they actually don't have a tennis team anymore. They used to, but I think it got cut after um, some Title IX laws came into place whenever whenever that happened so i was just thinking about sports really i suppose and then when i was at ou i was you know i did kind of dig into the psychology stuff i wanted to be a psychiatrist or so i thought but i wanted to be a lawyer and all this and that it was actually a ta for some experiments that we were doing and then i went and, and listened to some uh people that i was working for defend their thesis statements and they were just getting absolutely torn apart by the entire faculty and i was sitting in the audience and i was i don't know if i really want to go down this path anymore so started cooking Tennis has always been described, it's a solo sport. So like you spend a lot of time by yourself and practicing kind of by yourself. And it's an odd thing sometimes, I think, when you look back through for people to kind of get involved with, was it just you enjoyed the sport or did you enjoy like the solitary nature of it? Yeah, I think I kind of fell into it. I'm not sure how or when I started. I mean, I started in middle school. So I was kind of a, a portly kid for a number of years. You know, I think in between fifth and sixth grade, I started playing tennis. And that summer, I just completely thinned out and came back and I was became obsessed with it and came back to school and was a different person and a different mentality of who I was and just kind of dove very deep into it. A lot of people say it's like 90% mental, especially when if you're playing singles versus doubles, the other 10% physical, which is very, very true. If you're a head case, then, you know, your opponent can certainly, you know, they're right there watching you across the net. They play that to their advantage. I think I did like the solitary aspect of it. It was on and off the court. You know, I was at the, my height of playing in high school. I was going to school, hopping in a car with one of my other buddies who was very good, one year younger, I think, with my coach. And we were driving an hour and a half away to Mansfield to practice every day after school. And then I had a like, personal trainer and we were playing six hours of tennis a day, seven days a week, and then staying in hotels on the weekends. So it was very much a, a commitment. Actually look at, you know, restaurant life is somewhat similar. It's tennis is not a team sport when you think about it from the coaching aspect or with your friends. I, I look at restaurants as a team sport as well. Maybe a little more solitary in the thinking process, like tennis from the chef or the leader. Certainly some learning aspects to all of that can be applied to later on in life. So you wind up going to this culinary school in Portland. Why did you decide to go out there instead of staying local? A bunch of different universities around the area have culinary schools. So I really wanted to go to New York. It was the French Culinary Institute of America, which I got into, but it was $60,000 for six months in Soho. And I just finished school and I was like, this is just obscenely expensive. I knew I wanted to cook because I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Louis Louis. 
was just a lot of fun. I mean, I was just a dishwasher, but then I kind of did like a, it was kind of a weird restaurant with a pizza oven. So I did pizzas. Then we had sushi nights on Tuesdays, Asian cuisine. It was all this kind of strange fusion, but uh, we're just kind of one big family that cooked together and drank together. A lot of mingling with the servers and the cooks. It was just like a, you know, it was a crazy college experience. And I, I knew that I want to go to culinary school after graduating was almost treating it almost like a grad school situation. And I knew I wanted to take it seriously. And I just didn't feel like any schools in Ohio would have been serious, whether it be Hawking or Columbus schools or whatever it might be. There's so many other great food towns in America. I was even looking in France and things like that. But again, it was, you know, Portland was on the list. And quite frankly, it was the most affordable town at the time. Uh, and that's why I ended up going there. And I knew that the Pacific Northwest is beautiful and offers a certain type of regional American cooking that I wasn't familiar with. Fantastic restaurants. And I wanted to be a part of a scene versus a classroom in the middle of Athens County or I wanted the true experience of being outside of my comfort zone and trying to learn something. You're there, you complete culinary school, you wind up eventually coming back to Columbus, right? So was that always kind of the original plan, like go out there, learn, pick up what I can and then come back? Yeah, it was. And it was really hard to leave. Frankly, I came back for, I was still dating my girlfriend at the time. She was uh, in med school at Ohio State and we, you know, stuck it out and that was always the plan. And I almost didn't come back and I loved Portland. It was amazing, amazing town, amazing experience. You know, there's mountains in the background. We were just walking down the street. It was different. A lot of young people and everyone just seemed like they were doing something. Um, it was cool to be a part of, but I ended up coming back and it was a little bit difficult. Um, I ended up finding a gig. It was between moving to Cleveland, I stashed at Greenhouse Tavern two or three times. They offered me the job. This was before they won their James Beard. It was probably their first or second year they were open. So I came back in like 2011 before I came back because I was dating somebody. It's like if I moved to Cleveland and she's in Columbus and might not go so well. So I landed at Latitude 41 was one of the spots that I stodged at back then. It was a really great restaurant with a really great chef, actually, whom I learned a lot from. His name was uh, Dave McClellan. Yeah, I don't even know if it's actually open now. The dining room, everything is there, but I don't know if they actually do anything except for maybe like small events or something like that. He was pushing the envelope. You know, he was friends with Sawyer. So I told him I was between this and Cleveland and he kind of convinced me to stay. And that's where I met my two future business partners for Angry Bear. They were both line cooks at Latitude 41. There's uh, Marcus Meacham was there at the time. As a line cook, there's some other line cooks that went on to go be chefs. We had a good team. It was competitive. Yeah, it was a nice little moment in time. Going back real quick to wrap it up with culinary school. If somebody working with you now asked you, hey, you know, I want to be a chef one day on my own restaurant. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I won't say I didn't learn. I actually did that. I did my research on the school that I went to, and there's like a few different James Beard Award winners that I worked under there. So I was lucky and was able to uh, meet these people and learn from them. But at the end of the day, it did feel like we're just kind of paying for a knife kit and some ingredients. And it was, you know, I staged my way through Portland quite a bit in my spare time. I tried to get a job. I did find a job. I didn't last very long because it was actually before I started culinary school. And I interviewed very well and it was kind of a fancy restaurant and 
I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I ended up getting fired like a, a month later, <laughs> right before culinary school started. Actually, uh, Andrew Smith worked there as well. It's called Blue Hour. Strange restaurant, very large, lots of hazing and things of that nature. But I have a real life experience. One of my guys who um very talented young cook, ended up being a line cook and was promoted to one of the sous chefs at the market. His name's Andrew Wheeler. He was in culinary school and he asked me if he should continue to, I think the culinary school like was shutting down or something and then the option to just get like a certificate and a payout for whatever was left or you could continue. And he asked my advice. So I was like, get the money. Like you shouldn't even be going there anyways, learning way more at work than at school. And that was my experience as well. I worked stage in three or four restaurants. Because after I got fired and started school, nobody really wanted to hire a student yeah, at least that was my experience so i just ended up working for free my stint in portland and i learned quite a bit from different chefs more so from working than in school it was a cool experience but it was an expensive one and probably not worth it i would say if you actually care enough to do some research and pick out a, if you have the means to travel or i guess we're just, just Assume that this person might be in Ohio or in Columbus. If you have the means, go to New York, Chicago, Portland, wherever, and try to find some kind of a mentor. Not, or at least try to find a mentor that fits your style of what you want to become here in Columbus. And I'm sure that somebody will will speak to you and see uh, if that relationship will work or not. When Latitude 41, when you're working there, I'm assuming it's kind of in its height as a restaurant. Were you guys doing breakfast and brunch and lunch too, or was it just dinner? All three, seven days. I only worked dinner in all the restaurants that I've actually up until recently. So it was kind of a busy transition, breakfast, lunch, guys would come in and they're just cleaning up from their mise en place and mess and just trying to get a clean shift over and start the dinner program up. The place was busy. It was large, especially when events were in town. So it was corporate. It was different. Did a lot of small mom and pop shops up in Portland, mostly. And then uh, this that was really my only corporate job. So I do have experience with both and I'm happy for it. Um, but it was large and it was busy and we had to move and we'd wear our chef coats and all that kind of stuff. And it was very uh, structured. Not necessarily a bad thing. So who was the first to pitch the idea for Angry Bear Kitchen at U3? You and Jared and Daniel? I don't remember. I mean, those two were pretty close before I came back from Portland. I don't even think they liked me at first, actually. We ended up just going, we drank at Tip Top a lot. And Max, Max Cafe, my brother worked at Max before it was a proper pub. We'd go there almost every night and drink. And then we would just kind of like talk about, you know, as most line cooks, I think, do is uh, opening up their own spot and what it might be or what we could do. And well, the name came from basically the service staff, if I remember correctly, Latitude. So we were at the time young and could be moody, you know, yell at servers and things of that nature. And they kind of nicknamed us three as the uh, angry bears. The servers would slap like the uh, blue Care Bear rain cloud stickers all over the kitchen just to kind of taunt us. So that's where that name comes from. Yeah. So when you guys decide to actually open your own spot, you guys all kind of split up for a little bit, right? I think you wound up going to like Bozzi Italia. Was that just to bridge the gap until the space was ready? So Dave ended up leaving uh, the chef 
And when he left, everyone's like, you know, fuck this. We got Dave's the best. We're out of here type of mentality. Dave went to Bossy. Then Jared went. And then I was left alone. I don't remember where Dan went. I think he was already gone. The sous chef there at the time, who was kind of an asshole. So nobody really liked working with him. So I was like the lead line cook, kind of holding it down. Jared and Dave asked if I wanted to come here to Bossy. I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. Because Dave was on his way out to California to open up another restaurant with uh, Dean Max, which is the Latitude head chef, kind of like the celebrity chef type of deal. He was different restaurants around the country. I don't know if they're exclusively in Renaissance hotels or not. I don't think so, but some kind of a Marriott program, I believe. He was a big presence, but he was only there about two or three times a year. So he was going out to California to do that. So he needed a stronger team over at Bossy. So I came over to help. And Jared and I were basically co-sous chefs, if you will, under uh, John Dornbeck. And we did that for like a year, which I thoroughly enjoyed that job as well. It was a lot of fun. Johnny and Trish were very, very humble, good people. And I learned a lot from from him and you know that tiny house turned out a lot of food it's a very popular restaurant especially in the summertime with that patio so we were we got kicked around a little bit for sure you can walk through the kitchen to the patio i don't know if you're a rat but it's very small so it's impressive how many covers you might do in a night but angerberry just kind of fell into our laps dan was the one that maybe found it he was always kind of searching and i can't remember where he was sage was up for sale and i think it was like listed like 150k or something so we we're like let's just go look at it just get a little practice if you will walk through meet the you know we we're i was only 26 or 27 at the time i think like all right let's go look at it and when we got there we walked through it, it ended up being like i don't remember like eighty thousand dollars so it was mislisted or they didn't or like oh okay it's pretty cheap <laughs> in the grand scheme of things so then we just kind of found the money and pursued it we really didn't think too much about it we didn't really have a business plan or anything we just kind of did it which is cool i guess looking back it was maybe a little irresponsible but uh we made it work that was not necessarily planned we were just kind of working at bossy and and then we weren't once you guys open you guys didn't have to do too too much to it right not too much. We got all new tables, chairs. We doctored up the bar kind of a lot. My dad's a pediatrician, but he's, he's a very talented carpenter as well. So he built out the bar for us and built some other things to go behind the bar. And we uh, we built in a walk-in in the hallway in the back. It may or may not have been legal, but we did it anyways. We did a lot of stuff for ourselves, but from an outside perspective coming in, probably looked pretty similar to what it was. Which was first for us, actually. People would just come in like, oh, you're in the old sage. Like, no, we changed a lot here. And then you guys wound up getting a decent amount of the ingredients from the farm, right? Yeah. At the time, my uncle was living on the farm, dad's brother. He kind of did a lot of upkeep and planted a lot. Of, there was just a lot of produce. And yeah, I would, we would go out there and do a little work and I would come back with a shit ton of produce. So that was kind of fun. And a lot of the dishes kind of revolved around that, especially in the summertime and early fall. It's nice. The farm's still there, but uh, uh, it's not as functional. He, my uncle's since moved away and uh, it's it's more of a playground for us at the moment. Hopefully get up and functional uh, one of these days, but currently nobody's living on it. So. so looking back on kind of the two-year run of Angry Bird, do you think you guys were too early for Columbus with kind of the style of food that you were doing or was it more didn't really know kind of all the back office stuff that you needed for a restaurant to be successful or 
my partners ended up they have families. Jared got married. Dan already had a, had already had a child. Yeah, before we opened, so, and Jared was starting to try to get a family going, and it was just a lot of work for not a whole lot of payout, which is still the beginning of a business, and that's to be somewhat expected. But uh, so we took a vote, and they didn't want to do it anymore. I voted to continue, quite frankly, but uh, I was outvoted. Uh, but we did sell it for a profit. Uh, it wasn't like we went out of business. It was a decision. But I do think so the people that came was very industry heavy following was like a little, small little cult following that we had. Um, and people really dug it. And I do think it was a little bit ahead of its time. I took a lot of things that I learned in Portland and almost tried to open up a Portland restaurant, if you will, in Columbus. And a lot of people just, just didn't get it or didn't want to like, you know, search these things out too. I mean, this is a town full of chain restaurants and copy and repeat and and just everyone likes their own same thing. So I'm not saying it, it's certainly gotten better since then, but it's still got a ways to go to, to reach, in my opinion, you know, the Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati type of restaurants that uh, hold staples that people seem to flock to. We are still a good food town. So yeah, I think it's a little ahead of its time for sure. Did you ever consider, you know, when they voted to not do it anymore, just taking it on yourself? Yeah, I talked about it with some people and my dad, but I ended up kind of going with the flow and starting a new chapter, if you will. So from there, I think you wind up with A&R Creative. You take over the kitchen at the Market Italian Village. So how did you wind up there? Did you specifically want to work there? Or was it just an opportunity that came up? People just started calling me almost immediately. I mean, like an article came out that we were shutting down and it was either going to go there. Some other people called, but uh, it was really between moving back to Athens and working for Jackios. Art, the owner of Jackios, had reached out and I went up there a couple of times for interviews and they wanted me to kind of run uh, a few different projects for them that they have going on. But I felt like I had an unfinished business in Columbus and simultaneously uh, A&R, a bed, my old bosses had reached out and kind of like whined and dined me and I, I don't know, like three or four interviews and dinners and uh, ended up going there. So I ended up being the head chef of the restaurant group, if you will, or more like R&D director or R&D for uh, helping out the other chefs with their menus, things like that. But my home base did end up being the market. Uh, Stefan was running it at the time. If the story goes correctly. If I remember right, they had offered him the head chef job at the at the market, but he asked, please find somebody else so I can learn. I want to keep learning. And it just wasn't happening for him or that space at that time. So that's where they planted me when I said, okay, when you're going through that like interview process with multiple different organizations that you could potentially work for, is there anything that you're looking for? Yes, they're interviewing you, but you're also interviewing them because you have multiple opportunities that you're trying to figure out what's the best fit. What are you looking for for them to say that kind of makes you go, oh, okay, like this is a place that makes sense and kind of aligns with what I want? Money definitely is a factor creative freedom not that that wasn't offered at jackio's but the a and r guys are and sometimes be lacking on the execution but they certainly are not lacking on the visionary things that they want to do they can talk about for days about what they want to do and, and there's a lot of great ideas and mesmerized by that and what could be and what we can do and travel is a big part of my package with them which really 
raised my eyebrows. Basically, they were fans of Angry Bear. That's how they, I remember them coming in and eating. And, I, you know, I didn't have to cook or, I said it's an interview, but they were kind of just vetting me. They're, uh, I didn't have to, like, prove myself or anything. So, which is kind of nice. So, it's, you know, it's nice to me to be wanted, I suppose. I guess that's what happened. Yeah. They were just saying all the right things at that moment in time. And I needed a job. You know, I got, I was Ubering in between and I got sick of that pretty quick. So, was this also the first time that you were able to work with your twin brother, Colin? Cause he was running the bar program there. He worked at Angry Bear as well. Not the first time. I actually came on and a job opened up. I brought him on. He's still there doing his thing. You know, you're kind of this R&D head, culinary director, some sort of position like that. Yeah, it was kind of like a made up job. Like nobody, I wasn't like filling a, a somebody left. We're filling, I kind of made up a job for me. So yeah, we're it was trying to figure it out as we go. You did like the menu for Alchemy. Yeah, I helped out with the Alchemy 2 opening up in Grandview that process quite a bit a lot of you know if the crest was going through a menu change because everything was fairly seasonal maybe not so much the campus restaurants but obviously the crest parsons no more they're in the process of opening up another restaurant but the two crests hoof-hearted my buddy justin watrings running it and he kind of has his own style but he would so i didn't help him as much as the other chefs but he would still want me to come to his rollouts or taste some food and be like this could use this or that but i wasn't so much involved with that i mean the crest had a shit ton of turnover with chefs or whatever for various reasons but uh depending on the chef i would either straight up write the whole menu or a portion of it or just give advice it just kind of depends because if they actually are a chef you know and not a kitchen manager you can't just in my opinion come in there and just hand them a piece of paper and be like okay here it is it's where you're gonna cook they're not gonna last long they're gonna start to resent you or the process or the or the team then they need some some freedoms and some creative freedoms of their own so i'm just kind of trying to stoke that fire if you will and you just kind of have to it depends on the person, how you approach it. So I like to teach I'm fairly cool, calm, collected in my management style and uh, until I don't need to be. But that's just kind of it's my process is trying to get to know that chef or that or the line cooks or whoever it might be and figure out what works for them, even if it doesn't work as well for myself. So how did the idea for No Menu Monday come about? That was my idea. I think we were just looking, the market went through quite the change throughout the years. I mean, when I got there, they're doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they're, it was kind of like very strange. You might have like a giant tin of Spanish anchovies right next to a, some cheap toilet paper and Reese buffs. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Changed quite a bit. The first to go was breakfast. Then lunch went. People were pissed. Like customers were pissed. A lot. Of, we lost a lot of customers. Like there was a dish on the menu that was so ridiculous in my opinion. It was just like tomato sauce, basically a snowball of feta, and they baked it in the wood fire oven, paired with an obscene amount of mediocre focaccia, and that was like the number one seller. And made a lot of money on it. It was cool. And that was cool. But uh, like, I was just like this, we got to cut the fat and this garbage. So we cut a lot of fat, pissed a lot of people off in the process. And we were slow for a long time. 
the people I worked for, Ali and his brothers, like they were cool with it. Like they had their campus restaurants and everything that were just renting money, especially Midway and some other spots. And they, they had the patience to wait out maybe a not so profitable space. And then eventually we somehow caught, started to get some traction, some good press and, and some followers and uh, some regulars. And it started to become cool. And that's, and then we, like I said, we got rid of dinner or lunch and did dinner only. And that was the right move. And we made, again, more people angry and lost some more customers, but it ended up being more profitable to do a dinner only space than with lunch or breakfast. So, you know, less labor, it just became busier, but no menu Monday came about. So we wanted to get even more busy. I'm sure this was during the kind of the, some of those transitional periods where we're like, we need more business. And I'm, almost every day of the week, I kind of came up with some kind of a stick to get people in the doors. Uh, Monday was uh, was that. I was like, let's do a no menu Monday. I didn't really necessarily want to do it every Monday. <laughs> I was persuaded to. Tuesday, I don't remember what we did on Tuesdays, but Wednesday we ended up doing a charcuterie night that was very popular. It was like a build your own charcuterie. Thursdays was oysters, I think. Thursdays got crazy. Towards the end, we're buying five or 600 oysters running out. That was just bonkers. And my brother ended up, we didn't do this every Friday, but we ended up doing it quite a bit. He did like a, this is Tuesdays was uh, champagne and French fries. And it was just wrangling like livestock. Like, so we had like Matt or somebody from any kind of wine rep would set up and you had your tasting and to go get your tasting so people weren't even sitting down they were just circling the island of the bar never sitting down we're just watching just elbows to elbows <laughs> just shoveling out french fries and people were getting their tastings and it was just like we we're just like cowboys just trying to wrangle everybody into their champagne classes it was crazy so those nights all started kind of working no monday monday that was just one of those things one of those nights to try to get asses and seats when you're going through and you're axing different dishes off the menu and you're taking away breakfast and lunch like that and you're getting all this blowback do you ever second guess and go like well shit maybe i shouldn't have done that or would it have just been easier if the restaurant went under a new name because like people associate like all right i can get breakfast lunch and dinner here at the market and then when all that goes away would it have just made more sense to change it from the market to some other name and then it's just dinner only and people would accept it more Maybe. I never really minded doing it. I actually kind of liked pissing people off. So, oh, this dish is gone. Sorry. See you around. I think we may have talked about rebranding, but you know, the market's such an ambiguous name already. I mean, we had so many people coming in like, what is this place? And like, we thought your grocery store was somewhat confusing. That was another thing we had to fight uphill battle with. It was, it was confusing. You walk in, there's shopping. At one point in time, there's produce everywhere and there's the, the deli cases. And, but you can also sit down and drink and eat and it's full service restaurant. It was very confusing. Finally kind of got an identity, if you will, after a couple of years. Um, I think as we fought so hard to get that identity, I think it may have made it worse or even more confusing if we changed the name, if that makes sense. Like, you know, closing and then rebranding and then people are like, well, this is, you guys are still the same or you know, we're still the market. But maybe that's what they're going to do now. I don't know. Let's see. Rebrand and, and restructure. Was No Menu Monday the highlight of the week because you could be as creative as you wanted or was it the most stressful because you had no idea what you were putting on the menu until like five o'clock? 
It was a highlight for me at the end of the night. So I usually had a day or two off afterwards, but uh, uh, it could be stressful for sure. There were many, I would say, majority of the time, would walk in there and I didn't really know what we were going to do. I was feeling ambitious. I might write some things down a day or two before, but I would just. Towards when we really got into a rhythm, usually just kind of like, fuck it, let's just go figure this out real quick. I would know like what was on hand. So there are certain days where I knew I'd go in a little bit later, or we had to sell this or that, or if I had absolutely no idea, I'd get there pretty early and uh, figure out what was needed. We used a lot of different farmers, so I'd coordinate with them, know what knew what was coming as far as produce was for for the most part but because of the no menu mondays and the i mean we're open seven days a week and we're changing the menu all the time even the regular menu because we might create a dish on no menu monday we're like well this is pretty cool let's put on the regular menu let's ask this I had the power to just go into the basement and reprint and delete and all that kind of stuff i was doing it all the time my bosses think they knew what was on the menu half the time anymore but that that was the kind of freedom that i had I think that's why a lot of cooks wanted to work there because it was almost like a school towards the end. I think it was gratifying. It was over a number of hours, but you have to see what you created from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And, you know, there were some shitters. I can't sit here and say everything was awesome, but there were plenty of times where we're like, wow, this we surprised ourselves here. This is like really good. So it was gratifying. But yeah, it was come five o'clock. We weren't ready. We always somehow got ready for five o'clock, but it came down the wire a lot. Yeah, it could be stressful for sure. I'd be running around. The beginning, we tried to do it with no menu at all and just have a conversation with the tables. That didn't work so well. There was just too much on the front of the house to remember. So I ended up handwriting the menus and dating them and then printing off a bunch from the basement. So there might be like 4.55 and I haven't even written the menu yet. I'm just like running around trying to get this thing done. But uh, it was kind of a, a controlled chaos, if you will. I had a good team. I only had certain people work on Mondays if somebody really wanted to come in. I had the same team. If people wanted to kind of put it upon the my cooks or other cooks or the other restaurants to be ambitious enough to come in on Monday, I wasn't going to put them in the schedule. And that's how I knew. I knew if somebody was serious about cooking or their career path if, with the way that they behaved or spoke to me or like, please let me work on a Monday type type of thing. So that was kind of nice to to weed out who was serious and who wasn't. During that hiring process, in the market or Angry Bear or, in, or anywhere that I've worked, I always tell them, in two years, you should not, I don't really want you to be here anymore. I only try to hire chefs. If you either be promoted or move up, that's great. And I hope that you're still here. But I want you to learn and move on and, and grow and become your your best you. Now, if you're a great cook and you're still here in 10 years, but you're only a line cook, I feel like I might benefit from it, I suppose. But I want you to benefit from, from whatever you can learn and, and get the best most out of your life. It's cooking is strenuous, strenuous work. So it only makes sense to move up or else you're going to just be a crippled old man on the line. Do you think more restaurants should incorporate something like a no menu Monday? Part of the ethos too was what do we have left over in the walk-in that didn't move over the weekend that needs to kind of go before it goes bad? Like how do we Make sure that we're not throwing food out. Is that something that you think more restaurants should adopt since there's not a lot of places open on Monday and then there's not a whole lot of places that are open for like lunch or anything like that anymore either because of the pandemic? 
I think it depends on the chef. I think it's that kind of mentality, 100%, should always be in, in the back of a chef's mind. As, as far as a no menu Monday goes, I mean, that just depends on the on the restaurant and the chef because it is difficult, you know, to that line or else you're just going to put out crap and you might hinder your normal hours and your normal menu if you're just panicking and throwing a bunch of shit on a plate and sending it out. You know, the sustainability aspect of not nose to tail cooking or, or using the whole vegetable, if you will, is, is just how I was taught in Portland, I suppose, from my staging. It was a very green thumb town, very seasonal, one of the best farmers markets that I've been to as a Portland State University. It's just how I think. I wouldn't think of it any other way. And we were already doing it. We just, like I said, wanted to be busier on Mondays. But it, because of that, we really, really drove that um, mentality home. Yes and no. It just depends on the on the chef. And if they can pull it off, and yeah, sure, why not? The market underwent decent amount of renovations before the pandemic, but you didn't really get to utilize everything in kind of the grand plans what were those they had the one little private dining area or large dining area booth done that they ripped out the coolers but <laughs> the pandemic was coming those coolers really would have came in handy you know we would have done like a bunch of like grab and go shit and stuff but <laughs> that's uh hindsight's 2020 i suppose the coolers and the uh, and the retail aspect just started getting smaller and smaller because we were getting this traction from like things like no menu Monday and oyster night and, you know, ripping out of the coolers and renovating and creating like that family style space. What you're talking about um, was one thing. And then we put in a small chef's table, which is still there today. I started doing chef tastings. I think it was four seats, maybe five stools, basically like kind of plopped right in the kitchen. Almost. Those are the two big ones, the big renovations. I think those finished up in November. And then, yeah, the pandemic hit. And so we only got a few months to play with that stuff. The chef's table was fun. It was almost, that was a little more thought out. Usually at the beginning of the day, like if we get a tasting, we're going to do this stuff. But then we would, can't remember, it was like 65, 75 bucks for like four or five courses. But we ended up, anybody that sat down got, we fed them until they couldn't eat anymore. So we didn't advertise that, but they're getting eight courses easy as long as they wanted it. So we were just, Evan Jones was one of mine, was the chef de cuisine, was loved doing it. And he had these ideas. So anybody that had ideas, wanted to bring things to the table, I'd, you know, as long as they're good enough and I taste them, like, yeah, give it to them or, or it might go on the menu or, or what have you. So in a lot of ambitious minds that really kind of embraced that chef tasting, the cooks poured the wine, the cooks ran the food, if you will, or just walked it right over to them and explained it. And it was very chef involved. So it was kind of fun. And the family style thing was was cool too. I mean, not a lot of places would do that. I, we had just gone back from Chicago as a group during the renovation, the whole market went to Chicago and the market at that time was kind of like a big family. Everyone really got along well and got to take this vacation together and learn and ate at some great restaurants. And it was good. I mean, everyone had a lot of respect for each other front and back. Sometimes you work in these restaurants and there's a, there's just this giant void in between the front and the back. It's almost competitive and 
front i make this much in tips and you guys don't do enough whatever what have you and that was very much the reality of that restaurant as well when i came on and we i worked very hard to that's always been my style is i don't play that i don't i don't like that we need to work cohesively as one team and i've fired plenty of people front and back over you know their cancerous attitudes within a restaurant due to just petty bullshit so and at that time the chicago team was very strong and we all had a good time and and uh really adapted that family style menu mentality we could sell it pretty well and people enjoyed it when for those few months that we did execute that menu and style of cooking the pandemic happens you guys did carry out just kind of ran down supplies closed for a little bit did some carry out again closed again and then did a the dairy dose menu which was kind of like grab and go stuff too right yeah we tried some i can't remember what the first idea was like an italian nona's or something like that it's kind of a placeholder hindsight we probably should have never did that because i don't think we were anybody was really had their heart in it it was just a weird time and we did the grocery thing which was kind of cool but yeah we we're just kind of selling off what we had and then we ended up doing nothing for a while and and then yeah dairy dose came about from uh, just an idea that myself and my brother had i kind of pitched it I loved Dairy Dose. I'll say that first. Like it was a lot of fun to create. It was a lot of fun to cook. It was a decent portion of the pandemic or the quarantine had gone by by then. So I think we're itching to do something in some capacity. And I think we ended up pitching like my boss was there. My brother, Evan, we're just at a table and we were just spitballing. Like, how do we, what, what should we do? And it was like 1950s, like burger joints, what I pitched. And then like two hours later, ended up being this <laughs> psychedelic acid driven concept with the doser and this guy like dropping acid on somebody's tongue and we ended up calling it dairy dose and we're just basically the idea of having really fun nostalgia like uh dairy stops in your local not just ohio but anywhere i guess around the country like uh soft serves and greasy cheeseburgers paired with ice cream slushies and all the ice basically all the ice creams had booze in it so that was kind of why we're saying like let's dose them it's kind of like fucked up i mean at one point time my brother bought a sheet of like it was butter paper like what you would put acid on but he bought cotton candy extract and like put cotton candy doses and everything we passed it out to everybody and put on their tongues so was, we had a lot of fun with it for sure it was maybe not been for the whole family but there are plenty of kids there then you kind of wind up doing some stuff with Lawbird. I think maybe it's at the same time. And, and then you were kind of over there doing like their hot dog nights for them. Yeah, they did. I think it was the first and only hot dog night, if I remember. And they had, I think their original idea was to get a different chef every month. So they asked me to do it because they were regulars at the market. And that's where we became friendly. They asked me to do it as the first chef and then and i did and i think it went well but then COVID hit so i don't they didn't really do it again but yeah that's how i started working with them and you eventually were running their put it in quotes kitchen because they don't really have like a full kitchen setup but you were doing some food for them for a while yeah for a little bit yeah you're right it's uh you know no hood no real oven no real fryer type of thing so you had to get a little creative with 
what you can and cannot do there. And I needed a job and in between I ended up leaving um AR and ended up going and playing over there for a little bit. And we just did kind of top us, if you will, what we can do without heat, a lot of like garmage stuff, some uh inventive things and i think people dug it for the most part um wouldn't say it was necessarily the most gratifying thing kind of got a little boring and monotonous because it wasn't very busy either coming off of r&d director to going and trying that out just uh it's cool at first but sometimes you just need an oven and some flame was that like the biggest like challenge was just anytime you came up with something you were just like shit i don't have an oven it was a very easy job. It was easy enough to come up with things that I thought were good, but it was just very limited. So that's why it was so easy. And it was just, it just got a little old. And then you guys kind of started Boxwood, which was originally a pop-up out of there. Yeah, the, the pop-up was, uh, that was their idea. I don't know how long they had it for, but they asked if I could bring it to fruition. I was like, sure, why not? I mean, it was COVID. I really wasn't doing too much. Still working at A&R, but it wasn't... We, we tried to open up the market for a few weeks. Then we ended up closing it down again because people were just getting sick. There was a lot of like fear-mongering going on still. And it was just within the staff. It just really wasn't worth it. But I went home a lot and I was like, sure, we do this. And the pop-up was popular and lucrative. So we just kind of uh, did out of that small kitchen. It wasn't the easiest thing to do out of it, but we I somehow figured it out and structured it. And it was sold... Uh, you know, basically biscuits and gravy out their back door on the weekends. Was the idea always for that to move into its kind of own thing? Or was it just really a, a pop-up to just help keep the lights on? Uh, I think a little bit of both. And it was so popular that a space kind of opened up. And it was basically like, we're actually going to do it. This is probably the space to do it in. And sort of like, okay, let's give it a go. Hindsight 2020, probably <laughs> doing the pop-up because it was... You know, it was a good thing and it was, it was, people were coming for it. So how long did it take you to come up with the biscuit recipe? Cause I remember Matt Hagen's, it took him like three years and he eventually just had to get to a point where he was like, I can't keep messing with this. Was this like a family recipe or something you had like working on for a number of years? No, I like biscuits fine, but I'd rather have a bagel. It took a few months, a number of months of testing at home. Like I did like, I don't know, 15 or so different recipes and renditions. So we had a, they had approached me with this concept and we had a goal in mind of when to launch it. So time was of the essence. And this was their concept, not mine. If this was my idea, I might've taken the Matthew Higgins approach and taken years to develop it. But this wasn't necessarily something that I was on the docket for me in my mind or super duper passionate about, which is something to, to do. That being said, I think the biscuit turned out really well. It adapted. I had a, a great grandmother's recipe. That's where it started, but it changed quite a bit from that. I think after doing some research and testing, I realized that maybe uh, grandma's recipe wasn't as good as maybe I thought it was. I ended up making it my own. I think what, and that I'll put that biscuit up against anybody's really. And we used to have people come in from, you know, Asheville or down south and just say how amazing it was they haven't had biscuit like that since being at home right out of the oven there's nothing better sometimes that the structure of it can change as you're hot holding it during a, a busy service but i think what really changed it was we ended up using cake flour i wanted to use lard but we had to keep it vegetarian so we ended up using just crisco like i wanted to use like pork lard boxwood wound up closing at the beginning of this year casualty of the pandemic 
yeah, some other things going on. But yeah, it was just not the, we just tried to do too much instead of keeping it in the simplest form. But yeah, it was casualty and better to, uh, when operating a business or being a leader of a business, sometimes you need to realize when to walk away just as much as when to start something. And that's just kind of what happened. And then you eventually kind of wind up at Wario's. That's where you're at now, right? That's where I am now. Yeah. I help out over apologies as well a little bit. The Wario's, my, uh, one of my good friends, best friend, Stefan, and previous coworkers started it. He used to be my sous chef at the market. And then eventually I ended up transitioning him over to the Crest as the executive chef. So we worked together for for a long time already. Um, so I was very familiar with his process and what he had going on before he even opened. And, you know, he had actually asked if I wanted to come on beforehand. I was doing the what I thought was the admirable thing. And then I already got this other thing going on, this biscuit thing. And so I can't I feel like I can't do both right now. Probably should have just did it then. But, you know, I, I just took the long way home, I guess. <laughs> um he had asked me a couple of times and then the timing kind of that happened. And then he had heard about that and, you know, I had some other job offers on the table again, some decent ones actually, but then him and TJ gave me a call and wanted to sit down and, and that became an option. So I had to make a decision and I decided to, uh, to go work with my, with my buddy, help him bring the Wario's will always, you know, be his baby and his brainchild. He's just bringing me on to kind of bring it to its full potential, if you will, as we grow. Because this thing. Okay. So by grow, you mean like expand to future locations? Yes. You know, when he was on this podcast at the beginning of the year, he, he talked about it a little, but I think it was still kind of in its infancy about pandemic lingering effects and everything. So it was like, still, where would this even kind of go? And yeah, I don't know when he did it, but it, that place is fucking busy. You make a lot of sandwiches out of there. We're just hoping to capture and bottle some of that and uh, put it in some different neighborhoods. So, and if we can just get a little bit of that, I think it, I think it'd be fairly successful. The sandwiches are great, and there's not really anything else around in that area. Like, I mean, yeah, it's across from the stadium, but that whole strip there got decimated. Uh, you know, half those things aren't even there anymore. And the ones that are usually aren't open for lunch. If you wind up back in one of those office buildings, there's not exactly a whole lot of places to go and grab lunch that's nearby. A lot of those offices are still empty. So if people actually ever get back to even 50 to 80% capacity, I, don't, I personally don't think it's ever going to be 100% ever again. Uh, I think people are just even more productive at home than they were in their offices. I just don't see that happening. But if the numbers even go up a little bit more, it's going to be even busier. But hockey games, we get hit pretty hard. Not so much baseball, but we'll get a little bit of that. Soccer games, popular for us. Certain concerts. So it's right in the center of a lot of things going on. So I think he had a, a lot of things going for him. And then it's just that aspect of, in my opinion, simplicity. I mean, there's only five sandwiches on the menu and tapping into something that was lacking in this town. I think one of the reasons Boxwood maybe didn't make it is because we were kind of, we're doing something besides really good biscuits and gravy. We tried to tap into fried chicken, which was, in my opinion, a mistake. I mean, there's so many places that do fried chicken already and some other things, but Stefan had tapped into something that really wasn't happening, which is the East Coast style sandwich shop. Nobody was doing that. Not in that particular style with the semolina rolls and the roasted pork and i mean he even named it just like a east coast beef and pork i mean that's just 
nostalgic and common for the Philly or New York or wherever you might find these shops. So it was different. It was unique. And especially in this post-pandemic world, if you're not unique or can't differentiate yourself from the others, then it's not enough just to be good anymore, in my opinion. You have to differentiate yourself or you're never going to fucking make it. It's just the way it is. He and they and now myself, us, have tapped into that and we're uh, lucky for it. You've worked with Stefan for a number of years since he's been on this podcast previously. Give me your best Stefan story. Stefan is a very passionate individual, that's for sure. He likes to manhandle a lot of things. So a lot of things might be like either me, myself picking me up and cracking every single portion of bone in my spine, or I've seen him just pick up a like a 300 pound pig carcass and throw it over his shoulder like it's nothing and plop it right into uh anywhere into the walk-in onto the onto the butcher block or what have you so that's always very impressive i mean I, as far as kitchen i mean one time we were trying to make uh blood pudding you know you can't it orcs blood in ohio for one reason or another i don't know why so we tried to do it with beef's blood and we were just kind of trying to do it over in the kitchen and i think there's some right behind some customers as well and and uh it just wasn't going well because it wasn't getting thick enough and it just was popping everywhere and both of us were just covered in blood and it just looked like we had slaughtered a young child and we're sacrificing something and it was just uh it was just a very kind of funny moment for both of us and especially any customers that may have been around and he's such a large loquacious uh presence and i can't remember exactly what was being said but it was pretty funny so the last few places you've kind of worked have all been fast, casual, sandwich-driven, sort of small kitchen kind of places. Do you think you'll ever go back into like a full restaurant kitchen, dinner service and stuff again? Or have things changed too much and, and that's not something you really want to do anymore? I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't see myself doing something like that again. I That's just where my... I continue cooking or as I am to a certain degree now, it is quite different. But if I continue down this path, I feel like I'm going to have to do something, even if it's just a side hustle to keep me engaged or sane. Because it's just uh, that was what I was brought up to do. That's what I was taught to do. And that's why I enjoy doing that. I don't enjoy making sandwiches or what have you, but I miss the other aspect of cooking. You know, we're in the process of uh, doing another project with hopes of possibly that turning into a restaurant, full service restaurant as well. Um, that's that second portion of it is to be determined and by no means uh, going to happen for sure. It's been announced to, at least to the uh, Jackio staff. I think I can talk about this. We, we are going to be doing the food at uh, Jackio's on 4th, uh, that new construction project, that huge bar on 4th Street right next to Wolfridge and Penn. So uh, Stefan, myself and TJ will be doing the food out of there. And if it all goes well, hopefully some more projects with uh, Art and Jackio's, which I would be very surprised if at least one of them is not a full service restaurant. Even if it just becomes like a side hustle or something, then I, I wouldn't mind uh, doing something. I've done a couple of private dinners in the past year, even during COVID. Did a few for some friends or some other people that reached out, whether it's just uh, hors d'oeuvres or uh, most recently, a, like an eight-course tasting menu in somebody's backyard. Like it's that, that happened a few months ago and I hadn't done any cooking in quite some time. And it was, it was a lot of fun. 
and it paid very well. So maybe a supper club. I don't know. My brother is eager to do something with, with me again, even though we might bicker or try to bite each other's heads off from time to time. I think we both kind of, for the most part, enjoy working with one another. We certainly balance one another out. I mean, we're identical twins, but, you know, I do the food and he does the drinks. It just kind of makes sense. It'd be almost silly not to do something with him again at some point. So I wouldn't be surprised if that is a direction that I go as long as I can find the time to make that happen, whether it's a separate club or something else small that we would start out with and see what it grows into. With doing kind of those one-off events that you did, was it easy to just fall back into it since for what, a year, year and a half, you hadn't really been working with a full kitchen or you had creative kind of freedom over whatever you want to do. So was it just like riding a bike where everything just clicked back on or did you have to kind of think about what you wanted to make for those events? It was easy enough. Well, what was really hard was prep. So I had to do most of the prep in my house and not being doing it in a commercial kitchen was logistical nightmare at times, especially with storage. My wife was not <laughs> very happy at times. Me and uh, Evan did it together and it was just, well, it was a mess, but we got through it and transported it to uh, Upper Arlington at this house and the coolers and everything else. And I called uh, one of my old servers from uh, the market and she helped out and it was, there might've been one or two new dishes, but I wasn't about to uh, really, because I didn't have the space or the capacity to really open up and create in my mind felt like i could create easily we kind of just tapped in, into some old favorites so it was easy enough to execute out of a i don't have a very large house so just in a small kitchen so but and we both enjoyed it i know evan is a very passionate cook as well and uh, it was nice yeah easy enough to create the menu if we did a whole new menu that would have been not fun i think the passion's still there to cook and everything even with everything that's happened over the past couple of years I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's still there. I think I just need to be put into that. If I'm put into that kind of situation, just it's like riding a bike. And that's when, you know, if I'm just sitting, working on some something else, I might not be thinking about cooking as, as much as when I was younger. When I was younger, it's all I thought about. It's like I just read my cookbooks or watched shows or wrote down ideas and created my 20s and early 30s, my mid-30s now. Just like, it's all I thought about was cooking. And then pandemic hit and all I did was a time to reflect. And I've been working so hard for years and years and years. And then I had time to rest. And I was like, oh, maybe that wasn't the way I should have been going about things. And uh, so my mentality certainly has changed. I wouldn't say it's so much about passion of cooking. It's more about how do I get to a point where I'm not working, <laughs> whether it be terms like financially free or just working less and putting less stress on your mind and body and all those things, there's more important things like family or what have you. I still cook from home, not as much as the pandemic. I was cooking every night and it was nice. I hadn't done that in years, but we try to do like Sunday dinners with family or friends or whatever. So you know, usually it happens like once a month the most, but um, that's where I can find a little bit of passion in, in cooking. When I did do that dinner, the most recent dinner, it did stir something up. So I think if placed in that situation again, it would come back. Did you carve a pumpkin this year? Not yet. We I'm actually surprised that my wife Carrie had the brown mom to be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised now that we're talking about it as they appear tonight. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it. The last one I did was a funk truck pumpkin during COVID. 
I don't think I've done one since. You can find that on my Instagram. Turned out pretty well. You've been in the food and beverage industry, hospitality industry in Columbus for a number of years. How has it changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change and where do you think it's headed? You know, from Angry Bear to now, I'd, I'd say there's more passionate chefs and restaurants that are popping up, you know, that people can get behind. I think uh, the Columbus people or customer base um, care more about traceability than they used to about what they're eating and putting in their bodies and searching out those locally owned restaurants and shops i mean i think we're still very much a you know a test market town and there's a lot of crap out there and a lot of people love that crap but can't sit here and say it hasn't gotten better where it's going it seems like you know post-pandemic world is this fast casual game seems to be really you know moving forward and people want the ease and quickness of something that might be at their fingertips whether it's through an app on the phone or going in and picking it up but I think people sitting down and enjoying a fine dining, for lack of a better term, fine dining is somewhat dead. Full service meal is not as popular. You see these wonderful restaurants closing, not only in Columbus, but around the country, ones that myself or other chefs might look up to. So it's just a product of the times, whether it's, you know, I think the employee shortage is a lot of, a lot of different factors because of that. But I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that this is a very difficult industry to be in, especially with the pay and, you know, a lot of small restaurants even offer benefits, you know, and if they do, then it might not be as much as, you know, some kind of corporate gig or whatever it might be. So it's the whole restaurant industry is going through a change and growing pains and trying to figure out how to survive. And I think Columbus is, is certainly a product of that as well. Hopefully Columbus market and Columbus hopefully just continues to grow. And we've got a lot of talented chefs and good restaurants here. Like, you know, whether it be Veritas or Andrew Smith's doing the supper club. I know, I don't know if the supper club's going to stop or not, but I know he's working on a brick and mortar. So that's going to thrown into the loop of good restaurants that hopefully people support. Or, you know, I go to mostly ethnic restaurants and things like that when I go out to eat instead of these other chef-driven spots. But I welcome those chef-driven spots to continue to open. Hopefully good ones continue to come to town, you know, just like, you know, like uh, BJ from Chapman's or whoever it might be, just to help build that back catalog of of ones that hopefully people do go to versus chains or the camera rituals of the world or whatever it might be. I was saying that uh, his restaurants are not good, but they are. It's big fish versus the small fish kind of guys. Certainly respect what he's done. You know, that's, I wish I did that, <laughs> but uh, could be hindering to certain neighborhoods when there's almost somewhat a monopoly on the, on the streets, especially like in the short North and things like that. Last I spoke with Andrew, I think it's the Isla concept that was going to go into kind of the physical space. He still plans on, I think, doing the supper club. And then it was just kind of the Isla would be a couple times a month as well. He doesn't want to get back into like a full service seven days a week, five days a week thing at a, from the last time I spoke with him. So maybe things have changed since it's been a little bit. But what's next for you professionally? Professionally, I think we're just trying to figure out this uh, Jack Yo's concept. It's not going to be a Wario. It's going to be something else. So uh, we're trying to, we're designing the kitchen right now. 
that's the phase that we're in. And then we're going to get into testing phase and hopefully uh, figure that out. It's going to be like another 500 square foot space. So not large, kind of like Wario's and it's going to be a window, you know, not full service. So it's, uh, we're just kind of trying to figure out what, uh, what's best for that. And people are going to dig it. I think Jackio's brand has just been juggernaut of growth and I'm happy for them. You know, when I went to OU, my first year, the Jackios wasn't even around. It was year two where they took over, I believe, the part is called Robetti's. That's where I used to go. I wasn't 21 yet. That's where they used to get the underage drinks here. And then they, they started just with that bar and just grown into quite this company. So like, we're excited to uh, be a part of that and hopefully grow a meaningful, lucrative relationship with them. And then trying to get some Warios open. I mean, we might... You can get another Wario's done in between that project. We've signed some LOIs from different spaces. We also have uh, signed some NDAs on that as well. So I can't really talk too much about where those are going to go, but we're hoping to, that's the plan. You know, we got to get, we got to get some going or else uh, I'm not doing my job right, I suppose. So we need to get that moving. And after that, once those kind of open and we kind of like realize what we how we operate as a company with multiple on our belts. I think that's when things might, uh, yeah, it'll be busier. But once we get into the normalcy of being restaurant tours of multiple restaurants, and I think that's when things hopefully will kind of level out and things become calmer, I suppose, and easier to maybe do those passion projects that I know I have in the back of my mind and Stefan as well. So we'll see. Short term, maybe uh, some with Colin, we'll see. My brother, like I was saying. This next question comes from Chef Avishar Baru of Joyas and Agni here in Columbus. He's the previous guest on the podcast. So left behind a question. What is the most useful advice you could offer for someone that wants to start in the industry? I think they need to do their research and really think about what it is they want and what kind of career path or path in general they're trying to get to versus just jumping in with without much thought. And then that way they can do their due diligence and find a restaurant that might fit their mold or a mentor. Like I said before, that could teach them what, you know, all of a sudden two, three, four years have gone by and you really haven't learned anything except how to cook some food, which is, you know, that's the easy part. Hard parts growth, hard parts learning how to write a menu or manage your finances. So you grow as a human and, and as a manager and learn how to manage the finances within a restaurant space and let that grow. It's easy, in my opinion, to be the best cook in the kitchen, but being the best cook doesn't mean that you're the chef. I know chefs that I've worked for that weren't necessarily the best cooks in the building. They were the best person for the job as chef, if that makes sense. So they just need to learn how to get, want to learn and get to point A to point B and uh, versus just being stagnant and collecting a paycheck. Being the best cook is cool. It is. I mean, so we all kind of want to be that, but you got to look towards the future. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What kind of strategy they would approach or what they think is the challenges that the post-pandemic restaurant industry has brought up in their lives and how maybe they have approached fixing those issues or reasons why they feel like they can't fix it. So this next question comes from one of our listeners. If you were opening a restaurant in Columbus today, what part or neighborhood would you pick? This depends on the restaurant, but there's a lot of money in Dublin. 
Old Dublin, maybe. I mean, Bridge Park, too, but there's some that strip of Old Dublin's kind of cool. I got into Middle Eastern cooking quite a bit, working at AR because my bosses were Lebanese and we traveled to Lebanon for, for 10 days and we went over to Marrakesh and other parts of the Mediterranean and became fascinated with it. I always wanted to open up a kind of a reinvented uh, Lebanese restaurant, if you will, or Middle Eastern restaurant. So I, I don't think that that's anything that this town has. And it's really kind of done well for other cities. Just like, uh, you know, New Orleans might be Shia or Portland has Tusk or New York has multiple and Gallery, LB in DC. So it's things like that. That's what I've always kind of wanted to do and hope hopefully can still do. I tried to convince my old bosses to to do that and tap into their their heritage, but it just never kind of happened. But that is a style of restaurant I would like to do and would do in this hypothetical situation and probably Dublin, I suppose. Short North is too much for me these days. I don't even like going down there that much. I like German Village a lot, but I just feel like from a financial side of things, I think Dublin probably would uh, pay those bills. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across uh, all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? I would say it's got to be a combination of things. I tried to take what I've learned from people or, you know, quite frankly, I've learned a lot from cookbooks, just probably just as much as other people, if I'm being honest. I never wanted to be like anyone else. I tried to find my own style, if you will. And I, it's almost like if you present a dish to somebody, so you got a nice compliment from an old line cook who runs hoofhearted now. And I think something was on a menu and he saw it and didn't know that I would helped out with things like, I knew that was one of your dishes. Like, like just having your own unique style that people can identify. That's what I've always kind of strived to achieve. But, uh, you know, in Portland, there's Chef Corey Shriver. He's one of my teachers. He's a James Beard Award winner back in the 90s. A place called Wildwood. Um, fantastic chef. Then in Columbus, it'd be a combination of people from Columbus, I'd say mostly John Dornbeck. Maybe not so much in the cooking aspect, more of the philosophy, how to go about operating and keeping cool headspace and being humble. And uh, a lot of that from him. And then uh, Dave, Dave McCollum from Latitude was really the three. I mean, before I jumped into Angry Bear, I really didn't have too much line cook or work experience. We just kind of did it after that. It was more of a being self-taught and growing pains and hopefully learning from as you go. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A cake tester. Use that for everything. I mean, everyone in my kitchen's we're required to have them and easy to lose. You know what I'm talking about? There's like this little tool. Use them for testing vegetables that you might be cooking or blanching, cooking a piece of fish with layers. You know, if you stick it into a piece of fish and you can still feel its layers, that means it's still not cooked through. Assuming that this is a piece of fish that you do want to cook all the way through. And then when it goes in and out, it's clean. Or if you're cooking a steak, hold it up to your the bottom of your lip. You can train uh, whatever temperature that is to know whether it's rare to, if it burns the shit out of your lip and that's well done and probably you're fucked, um, depending on what you're trying to achieve with that steak. Um, obviously, you can use it for uh, cakes. You can use it for uh, cleaning out the pod in your iPhone. You can use it for a lot of different things. So it's always been, I mean, something I have here in my kitchen at home. So. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? 
Veritas always delivers. Looking for a food truck. I like Fetty's. Damien's always doing really cool stuff. This isn't a restaurant, but I go to Tensuke Market at least once a week. And they do have food all around them. So bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to yet, you still want to travel to. And then a restaurant you haven't eaten at yet, but still want to get to one day. I mean, travel is tough. I just want to go anywhere and somehow figure out how to work less and have the money to travel. That's all I would do. Probably if I had the option to not cook again, just travel the world, I would choose to travel the world and find a way to cook when I'm done with that and take those experiences and create something with it. I mean, Japan would be really cool. The place just seems like an acid trip. So it's just a whole lot of things going on. The food would be amazing. So there, but you know, all through Europe as well. I've only really been to Barcelona in Paris for a night. So I certainly want to go back to Europe and experience, you know, France and Spain again and Italy. So restaurant, going to DC soon. Albi, A-L-B-I, you know, wood-fired Middle Eastern restaurant, kind of like what I was talking about before. And it just looks awesome. And it's something that I've wanted to do myself and I think that could do. And uh, I want to see how the I want the best to it. So I'll be, I, it's actually on my list to make a reservation for that spot today. So craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? One time at Louie Louie, when I was just learning how to make pizza dough, and this, I was just like a dishwasher. I wasn't learning, especially a new guy was learning, and the guy training him. So we had a big Hobart mixer, told him to like touch the dough just so he know how it feels. And I don't think he did it on purpose, but when he was touching the dough, for some reason, he turned the machine back on. The dough hook caught his arm and broke his arm on his first day right there. So that was, that was fucked up. And one time at the market, a car, during brunch, a car like ran into the restaurant. That was crazy. Nobody got hurt, but there's some structural damage done to the building. And and uh, I think Jack Moore is there, actually. He was still running restaurant, watershed at the time. And it was just, yeah, I mean, we kept cooking. We had a lot of tickets. The market was very busy for brunch. Food or drink, guilty pleasure. Is there anything, fast food, candy, whatever, that you know is super unhealthy, but uh, you just can't help yourself? Pretty much everything. I like to indulge in different things. My wife loves McDonald's, so we eat that too often. I'm really more of a Wendy's guy, but they've, they've let me down the past couple of times. So we haven't been back, been there in a while. I mean, we have a whole bag of like giant fun sized peanut MMs I've been going through every single night. I think chocolate, I love chocolate, dark milk, whatever, it doesn't really matter. I like shitty Americanized Chinese food. I don't care. I like it and eating it, especially when I'm hungover or it might be. Or we eat a lot of pizza, Columbus style pizza or whatever it might be. Planks like on Parsons at $10 night on Monday. So we live right in that area. So there are a lot. Or I like Rubino's in Bexley, that old school space. The pizza comes in like the white paper bags and it's super thin and crispy. I like that. I mean, pizza and Chinese, it's sweet, way too much of. The key that I have discovered to fast food locations is find the one that is closest to a hospital. For whatever reason, I think it just is because it's close to a place where there's always people and they must turn over product quickly. And, and everybody, I think they have enough staff. People are on the clock and then they're off the clock. There's nobody having to wait 30 minutes for somebody else to show up or whatever. You know, when we live downtown, the McDonald's on Grant, flawless. Like there's never an issue. Like order is always correct. Maybe they forgot a straw, but that'd be about it. 
that's the one where I live, Southern Orchards area, and basically children's hospital. That's one we hit up. You know, like I said, the Wendy's experiences I've had as of late have been disappointing, but McDonald's has been consistent. We still go too often. Tried to get one of those adult Happy Meals, but they didn't have any. Want one of those toys. The four-eyed, uh, I don't know, Grimace or whatever it's called. I'll get one one of these days. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Openly gay animals. Funny one. A lot of stupid meme things. Like I, I'll send memes to same number of people and I can just almost try to like one up each other. Whether it's my old college roommate, my brother, Stefan, my wife. Actually, my wife and I will just send memes to each other around the, like the couch. We're not even talking to each other or fighting. And I just like break the ice with a stupid meme and just start laughing. That's one of them. I mean, there's so many. It's uh, these I can't even think of any off the top of my head at the moment. But anything with a stupid meme or I have a great Pyrenees. He's a giant polar bear. So any funny dog videos and stuff like that. I pretty much just follow food, dogs, and uh, dumb memes. And that's it. Some other maybe like cryptocurrency stuff or something. But it's only starting to get addicted to like more of like uh, uh, real estate or interior design accounts too that are kind of cool and like old school or like English farmhousey kind of like style of like kitchens and things. Like I can get lost in those for a while. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over the course of your career thus far, you can kind of point to it as the moment you knew you could be a professional chef. I started cooking, like I said, in college. And I think I ended up getting a that first restaurant job in college because I was cooking at home. One of my college houses and all my roommates. So I just got, I wanted to eat something, some substance versus Big Mama's burritos every night or whatever it was that we were eating. Banathens. It was probably like a braised short rib dish or something that I cooked for me and the roommates, my brother being one of them. Um, when I was like, oh, this is pretty, one was really good, and two was gratifying. I felt like, and you know, at the time it was network and TV shows kind of like glorified or romanticized the chef gigs. And I was like, all right, maybe this seems cool. Maybe I'll try to give this a go. Probably some kind of a potato, mashed potato and braised short rib. As long as it's all about the sauce, as long as you reduce that braising liquid and figure out how to make that sauce right, then, you know, that might inspire anybody to cook. Doesn't get much better than that. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were... Was there a moment, episode, scene that you always kind of remember uh, about him? Or if you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV? Emerald, Julia Child, whatever, you know, when you're kind of growing up or coming up through your career that you always kind of gravitated towards? I mean, I'm a Bourdain fan, and he certainly was somebody I looked up to, and he was unique and raw and edgy and lived that hard flank cook life that substance abuse and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was kind of easy to relate to anybody that did those types of things, which, you know, I did. I went to high university. There's not much of a party school or not much to do there, but I could a school party and I started cooking. As far as the shows go, nothing really stands out specifically, but some of his writings and books, like he, there's just ways that he could tap into. I can't remember what book it was, but it was not Kitchen Confidential, but it was uh, titled Raw. Medium Raw. I think it was like the second one that he wrote. No, those they're all different stories, but one that I think 
well, this was later on. I'd already been chefing, but uh, we're reading it. And he was just speaking about how like gratifying it could be for a chef to just jump in and do the dishes because you can just kind of zone out and enjoy it and all that kind of thing. And I just remember reading that chapter and just relating to it so much. So many times we turn over and we want to have a dishwasher. And I always like to lead by example. I'll stay all night and wash dishes if I have to or jump on the line. I'm not just one of those chefs that like sits on their computer and then taps out when, you know, it gets slow. So like, and, you know, it's just super gratifying. And the fact that he was talking about the same thing was just was one of my favorite chapters. I remember he was a fantastic writer. He was probably more so than his TV shows. So I encourage people to actually read his books versus I mean, watch the stuff too. It's awesome. But he had a unique writing style that was almost reminiscent of, you know, gonzo journalism or something with Hunter S. Thompson just in the cooking world. So very cool. Great. His cookbooks are great and he is missed. We have like a St. Anthony like candle downstairs somewhere, like on right next to like the record player or something of his face, you know, those like saintly candles. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. My social media, really just Instagram right now. I'm so many different transitional things since COVID right now. That's TKMIN, TKMIN28 is my Instagram. I don't really participate very much. I was never really that great at it. I just kind of, we would do these fantastic dinners with those collaboration with somebody, a winemaker from California or, or Josh Dalton from Veritas or, or whatever it might be. Uh, I just, we would somehow get through the dinner and we didn't, forgot to take pictures. <laughs> it's just like, never been great at it, but that is mine. I should get better. Um, that's really it. They want to send me an email or something, they can send it to Tyler at Wario's Beef and Bork 614com you can find me at Wario's and uh, and helping out at Poly G's uh, as well with, with TJ because he is part of the mix of growth within our uh, hopefully future restaurant uh, group and hopefully real soon over at Jackio's. Wario's account is just at Wario's Beef and Pork and then I think Poly G's is at Poly G Short North. Yeah, yeah two restaurants based uh, accounts, yep. A lot of the specials that we run over at Wario's would be, you know, come from my my brainchild, or at least we will collaborate on those specials every week, me and Stefan, and I'll run some specials over at Poly G's as well. And I can't remember who it was, but I ran a salad over there not that long ago. Poly G's and all the comments. There was one from Angry Bear and all these comments. Surprise, very surprisingly, people were bringing up, this is from Angry Bear, blah, blah, blah. So people want to try that buy food again, then just keep an eye out on those accounts and come check it out. We miss the the No Menu Monday days for sure and didn't have to plan anything for dinner. And it was knew it was going to be good. There was always something different. There was always like a pizza on there, but it was never the same pizza twice. You know, there's a few kind of staples, but it was never the same thing. So you knew you could go in there and pick four or five different things that you were excited about trying and, and they were all delicious and refreshing the Instagram feed at five o'clock to see what the menu was going to be that week. We tried to, to keep it fresh. There's always something though, even if there's a little bit of carryover. And that's the beauty of working with those farmers, you know, hyper seasonal. It was kind of cool. I remember one of the last times before the pandemic, you guys did a no menu Monday. We were always there pretty early, like 5 30 ish or so. 
I think it was probably like right around the time we were wrapping up. It was just packed. If we would have got here like 20 minutes later, like we wouldn't have been able to sit down to see it grow from where it started. And it was just kind of this thing that nobody knew about. And then towards the end, it was just, if you're not here before 545, like you're not sitting down till eight. It was pretty awesome to experience and to see it kind of grow like that. So looking forward to uh, you getting back in a proper kitchen and being able to kind of flex your muscles and your magic and creative skills and, and see what you come up with. I appreciate that. I look forward to it as well. I still got some gas in the tank, so I hope we can find a canvas to paint on, if you will. And if any listeners, you know, want to talk about those private dinners at people's houses and things, don't be shy. If that's something that, uh, you know, tickles your fancy, just send me an email and maybe we'll try to work something out. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for, for some updates and be seeing you soon at Wario's. Yeah, sounds good. I appreciate it. A big thanks again to Tyler for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off to jump on and chat about his career and everything. Like I said, it's a long time coming to get him on the podcast. Somebody that I've had circled for quite a long time was super influential in when this all kind of started. And it was really about like a food blog and a food website and all that stuff. His was kind of one of the lengthier pages that we had just because of not just his career history and places he worked with Angry Bear Kitchen and everything like he talked about, but also the amount of food of his that we had because we'd go to No Menu Monday like every Monday unless we were out of town or had some sort of other obligation that, you know, there's no way for us to get there or anything like that. So it was a blast to have a bunch of that food and looking forward to him doing some pop-ups and stuff like that and, and starting to get back in the kitchen, you know, regularly. You can follow him again on Instagram at TKMin28, also at Wario's Beef and Pork, which is where you can find him making some awesome subs um, that they make over there. Probably personal favorite from just their, you know, five, six sandwich menu is the cold cut. And the cool thing about the cold cut too is that you could basically eat half of it that day and then save the half, other half of it for like the next day. And it tastes pretty much exactly the same. That's kind of an awesome thing. You just pop it in your fridge or whatever. So you kind of get two meals out of it. Most of their subs are you can get two meals out of. You don't have to do any reheating, so it's a lot easier. And then they're doing a bunch of specials. Usually on Sundays is the meatball, but sometimes they change it up. Um, and then they always have a Saturday special. Unless there's some sort of other event, sometimes they drop something on you know Thursday or Friday too as well. So follow their Instagram so you're in the know um, when they're dropping those. Because some of them sell out really, really fast. They'll open at 11 and they'll be done by like one with the specials. So. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to write in questions, comments, feedback, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. Make sure to follow the podcast, whatever app platform that you use to listen to the podcast. We're on all of them. Uh, new episodes drop on Thursdays at 1 a.m. Then the following week, that episode will hit YouTube. So if you YouTube is your primary you know, way you view or listen or watch podcasts, we put it up on YouTube. It's audio only, but uh, you can still um, listen to it through YouTube on your TV if you're working from home or your desk or whatever. Like I said, we're going to try and drop two episodes a week for the month of December here. A little ambitious, but we got some cool episodes in the can and we don't want to sit on them too long. And we definitely want to help promote some stuff that people got going on too as well who came on the podcast and were generous enough with their time. So we're going to try and do two episodes a week. We might miss a week here or there, but for right now, December, Tuesday, Thursdays. So make sure you follow the podcast on whatever app you use. But that is it for this episode. We will talk to you guys later.